0: All right, this is WPKN, WPKN.org. How are you doing? This is Icon with the soccer and Calypso show here. This is our monthly edition. Uh, we're actually going to continue with um, uh, our interviews with Roger Stefan shortly. Um, we'll get this one in and come back. Good evening to you. This is, again, WPKN and WPKN.org.
1: In para islands, they're talking about Malaya. They're singing about.
0: Okay, welcome to WPK and Saturday night. This is Icon here with um, the regular uh, monthly edition of the actual uh, soccer show. However, I'll be talking to my good friend uh, Roger Stephens. Roger, of course, um, interviewed with me last time. We actually ran out of time last time. However, Roger is actually a reggae archivist. He's a lecturer. He's actually been um, um, an editor, author. You know, He's done a few books on the life of Bob Marley himself. So, yeah, we're going to continue it with Roger. Roger, welcome back to WPKN.
2: Thank you. Nice to be with you again, Icon.
0: Okay, Roger. We
2: ran out of time. We we filled so much of that with unreleased Bob Marley and saved the best for last. And <laughs>
0: Here we go. And here we are. Here
2: we go. So we're, we're not going to cheat people out of the the ending to that Marley tribute that we did together. Um, and and we're going to play the whole of um, the the most important part of the bedroom tape, and um, I'll give you a little explanation for those who are hearing this for the first time. Um, Absolutely, I've, I've been I was a friend of Bob Marley's mother from around. 1982 forward and uh, I went to visit her finally in 1989 at her home on Vista Lane in Miami and I thought I was going to find, you know, a huge stash of tapes of unreleased Bob Marley songs and she shook her head, and she said, no, mind. she said, when they had the funeral here in, in uh, Miami for him, uh, people looted the house and emptied his drawers with the rehearsal tapes and stuff in them, and all I have now are tapes that people like you have sent me over the years. And I said, well, are you sure there's not something? And she thought for a while, and she said, well, you know, I have two 10-inch Ampex reels up in my bedroom, and they didn't go into my room, so they didn't get them, but we have no idea what's on them. And now, this is eight years after Bob passed, and it seems a little odd to me that, you know, if, if you had that potential... Treasure, you'd you'd listen to it, but she loaned them to me and my friend Steve Radzi overnight. Steve was a friend uh, from L.A. who had moved to Miami and started a show based on our show here in L.A. called Reggae Beat, and he started Reggae Beat East on WDNA. (laughs) WDNA. (laughs) And he had a friend there who was the chief engineer who had um, the old machine that could play that 10-inch reel format. And... When she brought the the tapes down, actually her son brought them down from the bedroom, and we opened the two boxes, and they had no pancake on top of them. They'd been roughly rewound, and all the edges were cracking, and it looked like a box full of rust. So when we got to the radio station and showed them to the engineer, he said, this is going to destroy my machine. But... If there's Bob Marley on here that nobody's ever heard before, we've we've got to try. So we couldn't run them fast forward because the tape would have just been demolished. So we had to run them back in real time and then forward again to get a clean pancake, as they call it, and then do that with the second tape. So it was almost five hours before we even knew if there was anything on the tape. And when it started, there was Bob all by himself, singing for about 20 minutes about uh, being a prisoner and being about to be hung on on, uh, Christmas. And um, one of his choruses was, The jury found I guilty, and I found them guilty too. I'm a jailbreaker, hot stepper. And as you know, the hot steppers were the most vicious gang in Kingston, and even the bad guys were terrified of them. So it was a very interesting song. And then there was a break, And there was about... Um, about seven and a half minutes where he was just trying out one idea after another. And and these tapes are really like his daily diary. A writer would keep a journal, Bob sang his daily journal, what it was ever on his mind. So this piece begins with, so far away from where it's happening, you think you've found a place of peace just to find that it's happening here, it's happening here, there, and everywhere. And I think it was done, because there's no dates on, on the tapes. I think it was done in the immediate aftermath of the assassination attempt when he went to his mother's house in Miami for a short time before moving to England. So it could be as early as December uh, 1976. Um, but there's one wild card in here. Um, Actually, no, it's not in the bedroom tape, so that's cool. I, I believe this, this clip comes by, uh, from late 76, early 77, because there is one of the three or four songs you're about to hear that was finally completed and released, and you'll recognize it at, at the end of this tape. So come with us now, probably to the bedroom with Bob Marley sitting alone in the middle of the night with his tape recorder, Channeling jaw.
0: Yes, that's right. Here we go.
3: So far away from where it's happening You think you found a place of peace Just to find that's happening everywhere It's happening here, dear, and everywhere Please don't touch that with vision. Just Judge Vee, on try to arrest him, but the the vision can molest him. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Brand new Bob Marley, <laughs> Roger. Uh, the
2: future changes the past. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> what did you think of that when you first heard it?
0: Well, I, I well I, I'd never heard of this the actual song. So is this a, is this a release song? Did he ever?
2: Well, the end of it was we and Death We and them, I know, from but his the final album. The, and is, his uh, personal assistant, Desi Smith, told me he was working on that song as early as 1977. So I I think it probably dates to early seventy seven. Took him three more years to get it on wax.
0: Okay, yeah, um this is good stuff. Good stuff. Um I appreciate you um joining me today, Roger. So you you've read I'm sorry, you've written a few books on the life of Bob Marley. Seven seven books on the life of Bob Marley. And this is of course a lot of this is from your your actual um personal encounters with Marley. Um uh, let let's see. What was Marley's um, relationship with um, Johnny Nash like?
2: It was very positive. Uh, Johnny thought Bob Marley had the voice of a bird, and he loved his compositions. I think he recorded at least two dozen of Bob Marley's songs. There was an anthology album that once came out with with all of the Marley compositions sung by Johnny, Guava Jelly, things like that. And... um, uh, Bob Bob respected him enormously. I don't think he liked uh well, there were times when he did not like Johnny's partner, Danny Sims, the mafioso and uh, he uh, he learned a great deal from from Johnny building on the original teachings of Joe Higgs, who was really the first teacher for the whalers when they were kids. And uh, Johnny gave them, you know, sophisticated studio knowledge. Uh, He took Bob to New York to record, and he introduced him to the uh, Atlantic Records Band, and people like Hugh Masekela played on a lot of the tracks that Bob recorded for the JAD label, which was Johnny, Arthur, and Danny, the three partners, uh, Arthur Jenkins, uh, arranger, composer, and Danny Sims, the promotion chief and the head of the label, and then Johnny, the singer. And um, they they tried very hard to get Whaler's airplay in America, and it just sounded too strange to psychedelically-oriented, Sly-in-the-Family-Stone-style American DJs, and they, they could never get that airplay. That's eventually why uh, Danny sold their contract to Chris Blackwell at the end of 72. And it was Blackwell who broke them internationally.
0: So, I... Well, Johnny Nash recording a lot of Marley's um, songs um, didn't that sort of initially give him some, you know, some publicity?
2: Well, you'd think, but it really wasn't until uh, Eric Clapton covered "I Shot the Sheriff" that anybody uh, inquired who wrote that song. So, no, I mean, even the Johnny Nash con- connection didn't help him the break through. Okay, See, this Danny is Danny promised that he could get him black radio play in America, and he couldn't.
0: Yeah, well, I I guess he thought that um, you know.
2: And in the, fact, as as you probably are aware, a lot of black stations in America never played a note of Bob Marley's music till the day he died.
0: Well, that was part of his frustration too. He said he was trying to reach the black people and he really couldn't or didn't. Um, yeah,
2: I mean, look at the uh, disco song he made especially to break into black radio, Could You Be Loved? Even then, he had to give Danny Sims $80,000 to bribe it onto black radio and it never really became a a black radio hit.
0: So just for the record, there was the complication with um, the the relationship with him and Johnny Nash? Because I've heard many
2: different... Well, you know, there's a story that nobody ever heard before that uh, Bunny told me and uh, I I used it in so much things to say the oral history of Bob Marley, which is the, the book we're talking about now, which I spent 15 years writing and about 44 years researching and uh, uh, 39 years interviewing Bob and and about 110 people close to him, and about 75 of those people made the cut. And one of the stories Bunny told us was about the Whalers' um, opening in 19... 70, it must have been uh, late 72, early 73 in England, and it was when the whalers brought the big bass drum over and they opened with Rastaman Chant, and no one in. England certainly had ever heard music like that, presented like that, and they blew Johnny off the stage. They were the opening act, but the audience didn't want them to leave the stage, and they they started dancing in the aisles, and uh, Bob led a uh, a long line of dancers all through the the theater, and... um, by the time Johnny Nash came on, most of the audience had left. They were all hanging around the stage door, wanting to meet the Whalers and get their autographs. And after a couple of songs, uh, Johnny sang this really lame ballad, and and the theater emptied out. And Bunny said, after the crowd left and they'd signed all the autographs, they went around backstage outside. And they found Johnny Nash beating his fists bloody into the brick wall of the theater. And Bunny claimed he never went on stage again after that. I don't believe that's true. We could I suppose there are ways of checking on that. But this is the story, as Bunny told us. So that was pretty much the end of uh, The Whalers and Johnny Nash.
0: Okay, because I guess The Whalers got too big for him, perhaps?
2: Yeah, yeah. I tried desperately every way I could through his friends, through his manager, uh, through his agent, uh, to to get him to talk to me. But he he got so burned out by Danny and the mob ties and all of that that he I, I think he moved back to Houston and he became a preacher. And uh, didn't want anything to do with the music business ever again, or talk about it. And it's a damn shame because he has an imp- he had an important tale to tell, and I I tried to give him his props in this book. But you never
0: was able to catch up with um, Johnny. You
2: kn- I'm sorry. I, can you say that again? You, you, you never did
0: um, actually um, catch up with Johnny. He refused to um, do
2: any interviews. Yeah, yeah, and uh, that's. That's the major piece missing from all the books, you know, Johnny, Johnny's side of the story.
0: All right. So reg, renowned reggae historian Roger Steffens, he wrote So Much Things to Say, the, whole, the Oral History of Bob Marley. We're just kind of recapping it. On our last show, we went to some unreleased music that Roger, you know, scraped together um, from various means. And so we're happy to have um, Roger here, just to finish up our interview, really. So, uh, Roger, let's talk about the influences. From your book, I I gather that uh, Bob Marley's grandfather had some influences on him.
2: Uh, A major influence. He really was like the father figure in Bob's life. Bob's own father was a dirty old man of 64 when Bob was born to his 18-year-old mother. And, uh, you know, never really spent much time around Bob at all and uh, abandoned him in the city when he was five years of age. Told Bob's mother he was going to enroll him in a school and didn't do anything of the sort. And Bob wandered around Kingston for maybe as long as two years before he was discovered again. Um, So, you know, the father was not in his life. But the grandfather, Omariah, was, and he was a landholder. He had bought little pieces of land all over the Nine Mile area of northern Jamaica in St. Anne's. And um, he, he was a spiritual man. He was a mystical man. And so was his mother, Yaya, who was still around, who had the deepest African roots. And uh, I, I'm not sure if she was a maroon or not. I think she was and they were the untamed they were the slaves who were never enslaved in jamaica and they had their own private really country within jamaica they they're extraterritorial they don't uh, they don't have the jamaican government or laws in, in the maroon area of, of the country they were escaped slaves who who never succumbed and uh... so that was bob's background and uh... his mother sang in church bob sang in church with her uh, he worked in the fields from the time he was three years of age. He would ride his donkey called uh, Nimble and bring water to the field hands as they were picking crops. And uh, he, uh, he became quite a skilled rider. He could even ride bareback, and, and uh, the, the donkey would uh, leap a fence with Bob sitting bareback backwards backwards. <laughs> on the on the donkey, uh,
0: at, at some point, Bob Marley went back to um, Nine Miles, even after yeah. He...
2: After he spent that um, most of nineteen sixty six at his mother's place in Wilmington, Delaware, he came back to Kingston, and the Whalers left Coxon and started their own Whalen Solem record label, but they they couldn't really. Press enough records to make any money, and uh, although they they sold okay they they really didn 't sell in the amount that they needed to establish themselves with their own studio and so forth so Bob in late sixty six after he returned from the states, developed a very severe case of writer 's block, and so he moved back to Nine Mile where a lot of his family were still living and uh, he he worked in the fields. He he almost cut his right foot.
0: So since we'll never it's get a real
2: habit, but you know all the people who were around when Bob was alive won't live to see it, unfortunately.
0: Since we'll we'll never get that book, Roger. Give us something. No. Give us something revealing from your engagement. That's not in
2: so much things to say.
0: Well, something on air now that that we could. Uh,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got to be careful here. Um, okay. Lawyers. Well, I mean, let me think about that for a while. <laughs> All right, this is... you know, there might be some legal things involved here. I okay, be, so the, the, I must the, be very careful, my the, friend. The, the theory
0: <laughs> of the CIA's um, uh, uh, death um,
2: involvement in his death theory—did you ever? Yeah, um, I, I don't think there's ever been any conclusive proof offered by anyone. Anything more than rumor and conjecture, like the Trump people do. Uh, uh, connecting the cia directly to the assassination attempt on bob's life the most interesting thing to me is a documentary that i'm in on netflix called who shot bob marley and if you're a marley fan and haven't seen that yet shame on you you should get netflix just to see it they got siaga to talk about the assassination attempt just before siaga died and i guess he was trying to be as open as he could without implicating himself. But he says in in the film, I I always had at least two layers between me and things that happened so that nothing could be traced Traced back to me. He said that. So the fact that it was his people who came to murder Bob Marley in 1976 and the chief gunman for his party, Jim Brown, vicious murderer, was the leader of the assassination squad um, indicates that if he didn't, if Siaga didn't directly order it, he gave the word. And, and he did say to someone, this concert, the Smile Jamaica concert, must not be allowed to happen. So you say that in the presence of your chief enforcer, he gets the idea that, okay, whatever I do to stop it is going to be okay with the big man. But the direct connection between the CIA and Siaga ordering the hit, if in fact he did, has never been proven. So I've been accused of being a CIA agent myself because I I refuse to accuse the CIA of of doing it. But until I see proof, and when I find that proof, I'll scream it louder from the rooftop than anybody has ever done it. But I don't, after 40 years of research, I, I I don't hear it. I don't see it.
0: All right, so my guest is Roger Steffens. Roger, of course, the author of uh, many books on the life of Bob Marley. So much thing to say is the one that we're dissecting now. We also heard some unreleased music um, that Roger had in his vault for many, many, many years and decided to share them with us. Uh, we probably could play one or two for the folks who didn't listen to the last show, Roger. How's that? Yeah, man. Yeah, actually, let's do that and we'll come back. This is WPKN, WPKN WPKN.org. Icon with my good friend, Roger Steffens. Hi, Ray. Bye. Roger Slogans was done with Eric Clapton, yes?
2: Uh, they uh, took the original uh, tapes and added Eric Clapton posthumously. Yeah, that's, that's one of the tracks that Bob was working on when he passed. That's a demo there.
0: So one thing I didn't actually know, Roger, was that um, Bob was actually signed to Sony.
2: Yes. To Sony, oh yeah, very briefly. Very briefly, he did, uh, he did reggae on Broadway. If he had seen, said reggae on uh, um, what, what do they call them? Main Street in, in England? Uh, uh, I'll, I'll think of it. I'm, I'm embarrassed being an Englishman myself that uh, I can't think of it off. Uh, Reggae on High Street. They should have called it Reggae on High Street because Broadway didn't mean anything to people in England. And It, it was a brief period uh, when uh, Danny was trying to find um, a major label and CBS signed him up in England. And then uh, the record flopped and Bob didn't want to stay with CBS. He didn't think he was being treated properly. and. There's a whole chapter in my book of Danny's manipulations and how he got him to Chris Blackwell after that. But yeah, um, I think Sony got uh, an override on his royalties for four years. Ah. Didn't
0: know that. Got to yeah. read the book. That's right.
2: <laughs> 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 All right. So I tried to drop a little something on every single page that people might never have known before. You know, there's lots of little factoids. Scattered throughout the book,
0: yeah, all right, so again, this is eighty nine five and w p k n so what were the relationship with um each of these guys bunny and bob bunny and
2: um uh, well, Peter became tremendously jealous of Bob, he thought that Blackwell only wanted to promote Bob because Bob was white, and Peter was too black for the room and uh uh, he he was uh, really bitter about Bob's success. The last two years of Bob's life, Peter never even picked up the phone to say hey, how are you, what's going on. Um, Bunny and Bob always got along. They were raised as brothers. There was never jealousy there. And Bunny was just you know crazy about Bob, and um, Peter and Bunny got along most of the time. But then uh, shortly before. Um, uh, Peter was murdered uh, he, he wanted to do a, a tour, a show in New York uh, Bunny wanted to do a show in New York in, in 86 uh, which would have been only his second foreign solo show ever and uh, he wanted Peter to open for him and peter was furious i don't open for i'm no opening act for anybody i've been out on the road for years while you're sitting up in your farm smoking ganja <laughs> and so that never happened and the madison square garden was without peter but it was with uh, vision walker and uh, uh, and i believe for junior braithwaite we're, were both there from the original whalers and uh... Bunny spent so much time being Bunny that he only left time for one song for them, which was just disgraceful. Um, so, the, you know, there, there, there was friction. There was friction.
0: Because even um, after his death, um, uh, oh, yeah. Peter Tosh's um, response was that now, I guess, there's room for somebody else or something?
2: Yeah, now it gives uh, the rest of us a chance to, to break through. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Which, which did not endear him to a lot of Bob's fans, nor to some of his own. Yeah, who thought you know that jealousy was was very unbecoming.
0: Okay, but Bob Marley in it, in his death, I think, has gone on to even surpass the, the fame that he had
2: as a, while he was living. Oh yeah, without question, you know I think he's still the biggest selling reggae artist in in the world each year. Forty years after his passing.
0: All right, this is WPKN, WPKN.org, icon and you until just about uh, 10 p.m. My guess is Roger Steffens. we've been uh going through some of the, this music that um you know we we uh Roger let's let's play something as um of this unreleased stuff. Um I know this is your favorite song. Let's try that one.
2: <laughs> okay, can we I know what you're going to play and and I'd like to lubricate it to my dear friend and your colleague the night nurse Amy Wachtel, who loves Bob Marley the way you and I do, and uh, has been a friend of the Marley family, especially Mother Booker, for a a long, long time, and I love her like a sister.
0: Of course, you hear Amy here on alternating Fridays and WPKN at 9 a.m.
2: She knows her stuff.
3: 31st time I bless my eyes and you girl My heart says follow true But I Wine.
0: ultimate love song. There
2: you go. <laughs> All those different variations, a little rewind variation there, too. And uh, it's it's just one of the most beautiful love songs ever made, and it's the favorite of Lyndon Kwezi Johnson, who wrote the introduction to my book, So Much Things to Say.
0: You said um, this was the way you met Bob as well?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I um, I got into uh, into his show in uh, Santa Cruz, California in the summer of 78, and I uh, met a fellow by the soundboard in the middle of the dance floor uh, who looked like he had something to do with the band, and I said, are you going to play Waiting in Vain tonight? And he said, why? And I said, oh, because my favorite Marley song, especially that incredible lead guitar that that Junior Marvin plays, and he says, you want to meet Bob? (laughs) <laughs> just like that and he takes us backstage and as we're going down this long corridor he says uh, what's your name I said Roger and this is my wife Mary he says hi I'm Junior Marvin so said the right thing to the right guy at the right time and he took us backstage and introduced us to the whole band and Bob and I got to ask Bob who was in his cups at the time um, if he would do Waiting in Vain that night and he kind of looked up groggily and said well, maybe but he never did it because uh, the I3 wouldn't sing it with him, at least Judy and, and Rita wouldn't sing him because they thought it was about, uh, uh, about Cindy Breakspeare, his lover at the time, Miss World. But in fact, um, Tyrone Downey told me that he wrote the song years earlier. So it had nothing to do with Cindy. Uh, nothing to do with anybody in particular. It was just a love song. It a love song. Yeah. And he gave it to Bob. And you know, there are phrases in there that are not Bob-like, and, and there's one that I really think is, is significant. Don't talk to me as if you think I'm dumb. In other words, I, I know how to speak perfect standard English. And uh, I, I don't know whether Bob would would phrase something like that. I, I think he might find a little patois twist on it.
0: I think Turn but, Your Lights Down Low, I think, he said it was written for um, Cindy Bixby.
2: Uh, was written about Cindy?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think I, I've, I've heard that. I've heard i heard that the story. Too. Yeah, yeah. I guess that wasn't... And
2: even Cindy says that she's not sure that Waiting in Vain was written about her, but she would like it to be.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I guess we didn't hear Turn Your Lights Down Low alive either.
2: (laughs) Uh, No, no. Uh, And in fact, uh, one of the facts that was never revealed before my book is that um, because they were feeling about the love songs that that Bob was singing about Cindy, with whom he was living at the time in England, um, um, uh, the background vocals, at least the female background vocals on the album of the century, Exodus, are Marcia Griffiths triple
0: tracked uh, Rita and um, Judy Moore. Mowat- and Judy
2: sang- are not on the album of the century, according to Marcia, uh, because it's too many love songs. And well, the they they don't they didn't want to sing on the, on those love songs. Oh wow! Especially the ones that are on Kaya. Yeah.
0: All right. This is W. <laughs> this is w p k and WPK in the dog. So Bob's demise. Um, there's a lot of different. Um, Angles to it. I know um, melanoma was the found cause. Uh, there's some incidents that led up to to the the, the foot. Actually, he had an, an accident at some point with um, in farming. He had a farming accident.
2: The history of the foot is fascinating, and uh, doubly so, because melanoma, which uh, is what basically killed and metastasized in his body to his lungs and his brain, but it was melanoma in the foot uh, that started it off, um, does not arise from injuries. And Bob's father's white family had a history of uh, skin cancer and at least one death from melanoma, the genetic thing. And um, the, the story about the poison Buddha is utter nonsense, and you can't give someone melanoma, so that's, that's all bull. Um, the first wound came when he was about 11, and he was in Nine Mile, and he was playing in a very dangerous part of the local waters. And uh, he, he fell and uh, ripped his, his right foot open. And uh, he couldn't tell his mother because she beat him for being in a place he was forbidden to go. But eventually it got so bad and he was in such pain and it was turning gangrenous that she had to uh, whip up some country poultice out of leaves and things and wrap it around his foot and and cure it. So that was the first wound. The next one we spoke about earlier uh, was when he was in exile uh, in Nine Mile in early '67. And uh, he stepped on that sharpened hoe and almost split his foot in half. Um, And then he he used to play soccer barefoot all the time. And then people would step on that big toe, and he had black toenail for for years. And, you know, that that foot was, you know, (laughs) not being treated very well throughout the course of his life. But um, who who knows why why that cancer uh, came into his body. It was third stage when it was discovered. So he'd had it for a long time already when they discovered it but uh, after the football match in Paris in 77.
0: Yeah, but they were saying, I think he refused to amputate a toe. He
2: did. Yeah. He did. I mean, that, that's that's how you balance. And and look at the dancing he did, you know, and he, he was afraid that he'd never be able to dance again. And the, But the doctors could not give him a 100% guarantee that if he amputated the foot or the toe that uh, it wouldn't have stopped the cancer because it was third stage already. So that was, I think, the main reason he didn't do it. And by so doing, he his life ended at 36, which he predicted when he was 24. Oh, wow. Uh, he, he lived a full life, though,
0: even um, dying at well, He
2: lived six. two or three full lives. <laughs> he, he hardly ever slept. His mother told me he only slept two or three hours a night at most.
0: That's because he had so much to do?
2: So much to do and so much going on in his head and so many songs to write and so many people to help. There were always lines of people out uh, walking from the front door of Tuff Gong all the way out into the road come to beg help from Bob whenever he was in town. I mean, what a a burden for a, a man with little formal education.
0: And um, there's, there's a story that he actually commit, tried to commit suicide uh, as well at some point.
2: He uh, he almost hung himself in Mortimer Planner's yard, according to Joe Higgs. And uh, family man evidently confirmed that, too. Uh, Planner had a daughter he was trying to fix Bob up with, and Bob had already married Rita. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that was at a time when things weren't going well with Coxon, you know. They were selling huge numbers of records and getting three pounds a week from Coxon. I see. The uh, most that he ever got from Coxon was when they left the label, and he settled up with them and gave them 99 pounds each. He never wanted to break that three-figure. <laughs> <that's
0: laughs> <thing. laughs> All right, so uh, Baba, of, of course, was an ardent wrestler man. He took um, the words of um, Emperor Selassie um, and made... You know, the League of Nations speech and made war. That um, yeah, that's like an, an- anthem.
2: No, to it, it wasn't a League of Nations speech. That would have been in the thirties, and Bob wasn't born yet. Uh, the speech was given on October fourth, nineteen sixty-three, to the United Nations, then repeated many years later at Stanford University. But it was originally from sixty-three. I think one of the most important pieces in my reggae archives is uh, a cover, an envelope. Uh, Postmarked at the UN on October fourth, sixty-three, and signed by Haile Selassie. That's going into the museum.
0: Okay, so what is the plans for the the, the archives, Roger? I mean, I know well, you've been reluctant, reluctant over the years to, um, basically, um, uh, give it up, sell it, unless you've been um, insured. What?
2: Well, my bottom lines, uh, and and the reason I've never signed a contract with anyone over the past 30 years, is that uh, it has to be kept intact forever. It fills seven rooms of our home in Los Angeles. Florida seven? Ceiling. It was
0: six. Is it seven now?
2: Yeah, I ha- I recently uh, took over the, uh, the last guest room <laughs> and filled it with framed stuff. I had a, a small exhibition uh, in Santa Barbara. Um, based on the Queen Mary exhibition that ran for eight months back in 2001. They took like 6,000 things out of the house and framed them, and I filled two buildings on the dock. And when it was over... Um, there was no room in my house for this framed stuff anymore. So it's been in storage for 20 years. And I borrowed some of it for a, a small exhibition in Santa Barbara a few years ago. And when it came time to bring all that stuff back to the storage space, there was no room left. So I had to take over the, uh, the guest room and that's the seventh room. It's, uh, you might get a kick out of this being a New Yorker. Uh, uh, the, um, the the guest room has been retitled uh, the Reggae Vault, so I named it Oiga. Reggae Vault. Yeah, it, it's the Oiga Vault. <laughs>
0: All right, Roger. you're not Jewish, are you? No, I'm not. Apparently
2: not. <laughs> <laughs> Oiga Vault, which is like, oh my gosh, oh what the heck. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so the Reggae Vault is named Oiga, and whenever I show it to New Yorkers, they they get that. <laughs> Um, so there's, you know, there's hardly any room to, to move in that room now, so it's now seven rooms floor to ceiling, plus all the most precious stuff that I haven't had access to for the past 20 years, it's all been in storage, pending uh, a deal to get my archives, I hope, to Jamaica. It has to be kept intact forever, so, and yeah. it has to be made available to the public while respecting all the artists' rights. And you want and it in Jamaica. I do. Don't you think so? I mean, Jamaicans are so damn naive about their own history, and, and this is uh, an archive going back to the Ska days uh, of Jamaica's impact on the outside world. Uh, most of the collecting I've done in this century has been international. And I want Jamaicans to know how their culture has influenced so much around the world. I just worked on a book called The Reggae Nation by Martin uh, Hausman, Dutchman, who uh, uh, went to about 40, 50 different countries around the world, some of the most obscure places on the planet, and found reggae, found the, uh, the influence of Bob Marley throughout the entire planet. And uh, his book, The Reggae Nation, is just one of the most beautiful volumes I've ever seen on reggae history. It weighs about five pounds, and the artwork is incredible. A woman named Maria in uh, Greece designed it and did a lot of paintings for it. It's just, it's breathtaking.
0: Uh, so, you, you, what would you what what would you say yourself would be the most valuable piece in this? Um,
2: in most valuable piece in the archive? Yeah, is it this? Um, I, I I can tell you um, when I went to see Bob in Santa Cruz in '78. He did two shows that night, and while we were waiting in line outside, uh, there was a, a man passing out a poster. Um, uh, for a show three nights later that Bob and the Whalers were doing at the Greek Theater in Berkeley Uh, as a beautiful poster and I had it in my hand when Junior Marvin brought us backstage that night and uh, as I'm talking to Bob Junior says why don't you ask Bob to sign your poster and I go Oh, oh, right, yeah, I mean, Icon, I was so speechless in that room that night, you know, with Bob and the whole band there, and so Junior took me around so graciously, introduced me to everybody in the band, and everybody in the band signed the poster that night, so that was the start of it, and it took me about 15 years to fill both sides, front and back, with a total of 41 signatures. Virtually everybody of importance in his life, except Peter, Bunny signed it. Joe Higgs, his mother, all all kinds of people. But Peter would never sign it. He said, "Me no sign no B.C. Bob Marley poster."
0: (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) you've interviewed Peter Taj many times.
2: Oh, Peter and I were good friends. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But you know, he signed all his records for me, but he wouldn't sign that poster.
0: (laughs) Is it safe to say that you have every single? Recording of the the early recording of the Whalers, are, are yeah, those are part
2: of the archives. Ninety nine percent. Yeah, you know, and there's some things that are rumored to exist, or some things there's only like one or two test pressings of. But you know, I, I basically got the catalog. Yeah. So you and, look- a lot, and virtually everyone is signed by one or more people on the records. Some of them seven, eight people. All the Scatolites and Peter and Bunny and Family Man and you know. All the important people.
0: So you you're looking for a museum like setting.
2: We are hoping to be able to build a museum in Montego Bay. It'll be open, you know, three hundred and sixty five days a year for people to come and see the phenomenal history of this music firsthand. Yeah.
0: Oh wow. So you Roger yourself has um basically um, uh, you, you've uh, you's to, you hold on to you. You pretty much have Bob's legacy, <laughs> basically. You single had you single handedly is carrying the legacy of Bob Marley, basically.
2: Well, you know, people know how serious I am about preserving this stuff, and as I get older, more and more people I know uh, pass away sadly, and. Many of them leave me their archives. So I feel a, a special responsibility before I shuffle off to get this museum built. Um, so many people are counting on me to, uh, to accomplish that, and they're helping me in any way they can. Every day something arrives in the mail to add to the archives, virtually every single day. And I, I feel that responsibility, Icon. I, I, I want this to happen. Jamaica needs it. Jamaica deserves it. And uh, I'll do everything I can to the day I drop to make this a reality. Uh,
0: talking about that, now, do we have a section of the whalers in all of this? Is it the Bob Marley deal or it's a Bob Marley and the whalers? Oh, it's a, a whalers.
2: <laughs> How about a, an enormous haul with do, just whalers? Do we have you know? room
0: for the Peter Tosh section and the, Bob Marley, the Bunny oh, Whaler my section?
2: God, yes, of course. Of course, of course. I mean, that's going to be the focus of a great deal of, of, the, of the archive. Yeah, absolutely. Stuff from all over the world. Yeah, it's got to be. You know, we'll have every record they ever did. Bunny, Bob, and Peter. We'll have films. We'll have artworks, paintings, sculptures, uh, buttons, T-shirts. You know, there's fifteen hundred T-shirts in the collection. Uh, there's there's about four hundred reggae business cards. There's over four thousand buttons, handmade buttons from all over the world. You know, all that stuff has to be in there. I see. I That's... I want people to walk through the door and just be staggered. You know, the colors, the the breadth, uh, the uh, of of the collecting, which which encompasses so many different things. Right now, I'm looking at a an eight foot tall beaded curtain from Saigon with Chinese bob on it. <laughs> Chinese Bob. So there's lots and lots of stuff to share.
0: Now, uh, do you have any plans for any sort of um, showing or hitting the road um, with the archives anytime soon?
2: No, I don't know if this. <laughs> Corona deal is, is going to allow anybody to go anywhere in, in the next year or two. We seem to get these variants that, you know Yeah, but it's like a brand new thing and I don't want to take too many chances at my age.
0: Well, my and question uh, is, in the absence of COVID you, you have a traveling sort of um uh situation.
2: Well, I don't have a traveling exhibition, but I I do have a Life of Bob Marley show. Uh, You know, for years, I came to New York on Bob's birthday uh, from 88 to 2004. Larry Gold at SOB's would bring me into various venues. And that was great fun because he said as long as I could come up with a new video show every year, he would hire me. I managed to do that for 16 years. and Then the Internet started, seriously. And a lot of the stuff I showed, which was uh, incredibly rare, uh, got out. And uh, it's all up on on YouTube now. um, So, you know, people tell me I should still do it because I'm part of the show and I can tell stories that people haven't heard. But uh, I don't know. I, I feel guilty about asking people to pay me to show things that they can turn their computer on and see at home.
0: All right, this is WPKN, WPKN.org. Uh, Roger, let's um, get one of these um, unreleased stuff and come back. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not just yeah. the music; it's just the package that it comes in. <laughs> and you've got the and you've got the complete package.
2: It's the um, the black version of One Drop with that beautiful scat outro that has been in the vaults for forty one years inexplicably. I mean, and I, I heard another one uh, on on a Facebook Marley page. That Just Blew Me Away Yesterday. That's about a seven-minute version with a lot of those I'm Black, I'm Black lyrics. It's just wonderful. It's the first time I'd ever heard that. So there's stuff that comes out these days that surprises even me. That's right.
0: All right. So I remember f-
2: when uh, Blackwell was putting out a, a rare Marley single after his death. He was promoting it uh, by saying, this is so rare, even Roger Steffens hasn't heard it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, there you go. What's your relationship with um, Blackwell?
2: Uh, we're cordial when we see each other. Um, he uh, At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, he said that uh, um, I, uh, I've done more to keep the myth of Bob Marley alive than anyone else. The myth? Uh, yeah, and I, I really resented that remark because it's the, the anti-myth that I'm trying to uh, promote, you know, the truth you don't need to make up any myths about Bob Marley. His life is just so extraordinary in all its details.
0: Did 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 you write the book because you thought that Marley's story wasn't accurate?
2: Absolutely. I mean this, uh, you know, a lot of people think that the the main book on Bob is Timothy White's uh, Catch a Fire, which is so full of just fantasy. Fantasy, made-up conversations. How did he know what Rita and Bob whispered in each other's ears on the doorframe in the back room at Coxon's when they made love for the first time. You know, that's that's just not right. That's why I wanted my book to be... Well, the the intention of the book when I sold it to W.W. W. Norton in 2002 was that it would be those 110 interviews that I had done with people about Bob. And um, this would be the raw material for historians for all time to come. And that proved to be unwieldy, and my editor died, and a new editor came in, Tom Mayer, who really knew the subject inside out. He had a ska band in New York himself, and um, he turned it into much more digestible chapters. The original manuscript I handed in finally was 800 pages, uh, nine chapters and 800 pages, and so he decided to trim it down to 400 pages and 35 readable chapters. So So Much Things to Say was uh, hailed in the review in Rolling Stone with a headline that said this might be the best Bob Marley book ever. So I think our editor succeeded in making it that. So
0: my guess is Roger Steffens. Roger have written many books on the life of Bob Marley, and um, he's actually sharing uh, with me some of this unreleased music. We went to some of them on our last show, but we want to, for the benefit of the folks who didn't listen that last show, we want to kind of just... Go through a few of them. So, we're going to play one more Roger and then we're going to get into a little bit of your life, your exploits, yourself, and then, you know, we'll kind of ride off into the sunset. How about we do that? This (laughs) one is my favorite um, of the unreleased stuff from the vault, the Roger's vault, I'll call it that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Could you keep a conversation warm without making somebody feel bad? Huh? Could you say a few words of gentleness so my life won't be sad? Come on, baby street is busy everybody getting home from work except for you except for me i don't work (laughs) nobody would hire me (laughs) first they don't they don't like the way i look (laughs) and i won't change it because of the inspiration oh you're talking about inspiration now yeah that's what i like Talk. Somebody keep the mind's closed. Here comes the lights, baby. You're living in the get out 2000th century. <laughs> keep a conversation without making somebody feel funny, didn't I? it was feeling funny? All right, all right.
0: Okay, so you've been dubbed uh, uh, one of the ten most influential persons in reggae, my friend. I want
2: to. Th- I- I <laughs> well, you know, you take that with a grain of salt. I mean, I came in two points higher than Cox and Dodd, so you know that, that couldn't have been accurate. <laughs>
0: you think so you think you were higher <laughs> no
2: <laughs> I'm just, I'm just i think kidding. i wasn't even supposed to be on the list no i'm just kidding uh, but
0: I, I think you you did a good job you know just kind of um documenting um uh you know the history of the, not just marley but um you know the reggae in general um I, I, well, some of my favorite moments are some of the old videos that you have you know with um you know peter Tosh and those guys i like the way you, yeah. you know you were you know, you, you weren't throwing softballs at them either. You know, you were challenging oh, them no. back then. So, um, you know, I myself want to thank you for your documentation of reggae. I mean, I, I do see you somewhat of a trendsetter, I must say. So, um, <laughs> well, Thank
2: you for thanking me. There's a whole army of us out there who are the, the reggae warriors, you know, who heard the message and, and our hearts answered. Amy Wachtel is one of them you're one of them my friends the Midnight Ravers and WBAI are certainly high on that list they're the ones who actually got me together with Beverly Kelso and Cherry Green who who you know virtually never talked to anybody and uh, took me 20 years including their their help before we could get them to uh, to speak and have their stories told for history and Cherry died not long after that
0: so that's good that uh, we actually got um Got them on the record. Yeah. So, so, Roger, you yourself now. So, you 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 do lecture. You travel uh, lecturing um, mm-hmm. uh, the oral history of uh, Mali. Is that yeah. is that some sort of a a formal thing, or did you just? Get- oh,
2: it was formal for a long, long time, especially in the '80s during Black History Month. I was on the road. I think for most of every one of those Februarys. Uh, you know, I live in California, so I don't have to be back east in, in February. And I ended up in New England for most of those Februaries.
0: <laughs> and, of course, you, you did some acting. Tell us a little bit about your acting days.
2: Oh, I've been an actor since I was five years old. I went to drama school. And I, I had a drama scholarship to Iona at one point, and then I went to Carnegie Tech, the oldest drama school in the country, Carnegie Mellon and uh, started to act professionally in 1964 at the Pittsburgh Playhouse and then I was in the resident company of the Milwaukee Repertory Theater which is where I started a, a one-man show called Poetry for People Who Hate Poetry. And It was all living American writers and E.E. E. Cummings who I really loved. He's dead but he was too good to ignore but I did uh, the beat mix, uh, Ferlinghetti and Corso and eventually Broadigan and Uh, A lot of people uh, that I met when I was traveling, I was in a different city each week from September to May, all during the school years, um, in a different city each week, going to five to ten schools in in the space of each of those weeks, doing that one-man show, so that was a lot of fun to do, and I, I met incredible poets all over the United States and I would share their work with people in the next town and I'm a Gemini and that's the messenger of the gods so I felt like I was traveling uh, in the universe of poetry to the poet gods and sharing their works and it's the same way I feel about my, my reggae life which is now almost half a century. And when I, Whenever I find something that I think is really exciting musically or literature um, I want to tell everybody I love about it And that's what happened to me with reggae when I discovered it in 1973 through the Rolling Stone piece called, uh, that became the book Babylon on a Thin Wire, uh, Michael Thomas. And just, uh, God, the first taste of reggae for me was uh, catch a fire. And uh, from the moment the needle dropped on Concrete Jungle, which is my wife Mary's favorite song, um, I knew that. This was something I'd never heard before, and I couldn't believe there was this vast body of work just a couple of hundred miles off the shores of the United States that had never been given any exposure in in America. I mean, they didn't call uh, the Israelites a reggae song. They called it a novelty. They didn't uh, call, um, you know, uh, my boy Lollipop yeah they, they called it a pop song, a novelty song. So... Uh, I I had a whole new universe to discover.
0: And that all started with that one article, the Rolling Stone article.
2: Rolling Stone. I never get tired of repeating that phrase, you know. Uh, Reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. Woof. What the heck is that? <laughs> i got to find it. The next night I saw The Harder They Come and uh, bought the soundtrack on the way home, and my, tr- my reggae trod was in full force from that moment forward. That was June of 1973.
0: And of course, the, the, the reggae call came from your radio show at the time.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, I've done just about everything there is to do in reggae, uh, except record a song or promote a concert so I could stay friends with everybody. (laughs) But um, I started the radio show with my partner, Hank Holmes, in October of 79. And that became very quickly the number one non-commercial radio show in Southern California. Sunday afternoons, commercial-free, four hours with one of the hugest reggae collections on earth that my partner had. And um, the following year, um, I started an African radio show as well called Morning Goes Makosa with Tom Schnabel, and that led me to do things like turn Paul Simon on to Lady Smith Black Mambazo for the uh, Graceland album and work with King A Day on his albums on Island. I, I was asked to be the National Promotions Director of Island Records by Chris Blackwell for, for reggae and African music in the early 70, early 80s. And in 81, Chili Charles from Trinidad, a, a prominent drummer, um, he and I started a television show on cable called L.A. Reggae that ran for 23 years. And in 81, we also started a magazine with a woman named Cece Smith that was a playlist. It was like a a one-page mimeo playlist of the the show that kept getting bigger and bigger and eventually became um, an internationally distributed magazine, uh, 40,000 circulation. Um, I uh, I guess the uh, Tower Record stores around the world all carried it, so we were getting fan mail from the four corners of the earth. And that, lasted, uh, that magazine lasted as the beat uh, for 28 years. And in 1984, I was asked by the heads of Naris, the recording academy, if I would uh, chair a new reggae Grammy committee. And I was chairman of that uh, for 27 years. So all of these things, in addition to writing for my magazine and for dozens of other publications around the world and beginning to write books, uh, usually in partnership with photographers, um, it all led to a ton of material being sent to me by all kinds of people, record labels and stuff. And um, the, the collection, which began as an article in a manila envelope, <laughs> has grown, as you said, to seven rooms, floor to ceiling of the house.
0: Okay, Roger Steffens. Roger, um, you know, this riveting oral history of Bob Marley's life um, over what, four decades of um, intimate in- interviews?
2: Yeah, oh, absolutely.
0: Well, my friend, I wanted to make sure that we covered covered it all today.
2: <laughs> yeah, we should tell people again because I had some nice emails after the last show. Because uh, these, oh, and the syndicated show we we did, Hank Holmes and I did a syndicated show for four years called uh, Reggae Beat International, an hour long uh, indica- uh, show that was originated. Um, that uh, ran on 130 stations all over the world. And I have uh, digitized copies of every one of the 178 episodes of Reggae Beat International. And I've got over 100 of the Reggae Beat shows on KCRW, uh, which started out two hours and quickly became a four-hour show. And I've got master tapes that have been digitized from, from that series as well. And I make them available. If people are interested in finding out more about this, they can write me directly. It's Ross Roja at AOL.com. dot com. Show you how we're <laughs> retro I am. R A um, S R O J A H Ross Roja, which is what Bob Marley used to call me. It wasn't Roger. It was Hey Roja, come here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right this is WPKN, WPKN.org. thank you for listening again, we're wrapping up uh part two segment uh of um my interview with Roger Steffens Roger brought us a catalog of um unreleased stuff that um never been heard, never been played. so uh Roger, i want to thank you again for you know um joining us and sharing uh, the wealth of your reggae knowledge uh with us.
2: Hey, someday I'd really like to be there in this studio with you doing this live, Icon, because it's almost so much fun to talk to you.
0: Absolutely. We got got one hindrance, however.
2: (laughs) (laughs) 3,000 miles?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's two. (laughs) All right. So once we get past the COVID stuff... And you're in the area, for whatever reason, perhaps lecturing or you can bring the show on the road. How about? Well,
2: you know, my sister went to college in Bridgeport, and she lives in Westport, so it's not unlikely that I'll find myself back there.
0: All right, there we go. So let's plan it now. (laughs) (laughs) Roger, I want to thank you, my friend, for um, dropping by, sharing all this stuff, giving us all the wisdom, all this... Um, you know, fresh understanding of um, Marley the man, Marley the man, Marley, Bob Marley. Marley the, he was the a man. great
2: man. I I don't think he was a saint, but he sure had a saintly life. He helped so many people and did it selflessly. Never even owned a house of his own. So you have to admire a man who does a lot of things that the current rich superstars don't even think of doing he was a, a man of the people in every way and if you asked him to the end of his life what he was he would say i'm a farmer very humble yeah uh,
0: well the, your your body of work uh, you know you, you you pretty much has um documented um his legacy so we all know could um you know kind of carry on that and um we'd like to see that um that uh museum in kingston at some point as well i think mobe Oh well, Jamaica was my um, intention. Yeah,
2: Mobe Mo is uh, is safer than Kingston. Okay, you know, and I uh, don't really think of Kingston as a tourist city.
0: And to to for you to release these these archives, the conditions are intact,
2: Jamaica forever, kept intact forever, and it has to respect all the artist rights, and we'll big up all the people who made ska and rock steady and reggae and dub and DJ and all the other offshoots of, of the music from the golden age of reggae. We will celebrate them and give them their due.
0: That's right. I will be forever.
2: <laughs> They've changed our lives, haven't they?
0: Yes, um, they have actually. And um, it's a little sad to see the trajectory of reggae, however, um, I must say. Um, well, that's
2: why I say the golden age, which is past. (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
0: The current trajectory of reggae is not great. I must say that. I I have to say that.
2: But That's um, why we need to keep the roots alive. That's right.
0: Roger, anything you want to say in closing?
2: Just, uh, you know, I appreciate so much of what you and and your colleagues uh, are doing to keep the true story of reggae alive and and the proper, the roots music, not the slackness, not, not, not the stuff that insults women and praises gunmen but the music that teaches truth and rights and tells us how to live a better life and how to live for our brothers and sisters and it just makes your heart feel good through that heartbeat rhythm of roots reggae music and reggae music is message music it's not boogie till your coke spoon falls off your neck or 50 ways to leave your lover it's how to live a positive and constructive life uh, inspired by Jah and uh, a puff or two of Jah Holy Herb.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is Reggae's chief eyewitness.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was such a trip when Marlon James said that. I couldn't believe it.
0: <laughs> I, I, I I do think, Roger, I must say, one of your best line was, I think it was in this um, Peter Tosh um, behind the music bit I think you yeah. said um, if Molly um, represented all the healing in the world Peter Tosh was Che Guevara with the band that's yeah, my favorite line. Uh, in fact,
2: ever. <laughs> uh, a paraphrase of that is, at the entrance to the Peter Tosh Museum, uh, I said, if uh, uh, Bob Marley is Malcolm, uh, no, if Bob Marley is Martin Luther King in these times, Peter Tosh is Malcolm X with a band. <laughs> <laughs> and they, their family liked it enough to make it the entrance to their museum for Peter in, in uh, Kingston, which incidentally, <laughs> prior to that, had been a sex shop.
0: All right, Roger. That might be a good
2: um, way to end. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, Great to talk to you, Icon. And hello to all my friends back east. I I miss you all, and hopefully we'll be able to travel in the not-too-distant future. And keep playing the roots. Absolutely. More time.
0: Alright, that's my conversation. My two-part conversation with Roger Stephens, Reggae's chief eyewitness. That's what they call him. Thanks for listening, folks. I hope you enjoy. I hope you had fun with all this stuff. Icon is out.
4: Support comes from the Klein in Bridgeport, presenting the newly released music and cultural documentary film Summer of Soul. Debuted at this year's Sundance Film Festival, Summer of Soul film footage dates back to the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, with performances by Nina Simone, Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder, and many others. The film will be shown at the Klein Memorial Auditorium on Saturday, August the 21st at 7 p.m. Doors open at 6 p.m. with WPKN DJ Spinning Music. More info and tickets at thekline.org.
3: So how long you been on this island? I don't know. Man, that sun sure is hot. Got any food or water? No. Well, what's on that shelf right there? Those are my five
5: favorite albums.
3: Oh, you mean like your desert island discs? No. But this is an island, right? Yeah. And it's deserted, right? Yeah. So? That's
6: my WPKN shelf. Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, Return to Forever Light as a Feather, Emily's De-Evolution, Esperanza Spalding, Out to Lunch by Eric Dolphy, and Sweet Revenge by John Prine.
3: Well, that's great, Cheryl McGovernie, but do you have any ideas for getting off this island? WPKN is moving and our incredible music collection is moving with us To help fund the new library, we are offering donors the chance to sponsor a shelf A gift of $89.50 will get your name set on one of our new library shelves Visit WPKN.org to donate And while you're at it, use the hashtag MyWPKN Shelf To tell the world what five albums you would have on your ultimate record shelf Desert Islands not required Oh, wait, I think I see a plane Hey, hey, we're down here
6: Hi, I'm Ann. I'm a long-time listener of WPKN. I wanted to let you know that donating a vehicle is a really simple process. All you have to do is go to WPKN.org. You fill in a small bit of information, then submit it. For me, it took about five minutes to get a call back, then one follow-up call to set everything up. They were out the next day with a tow truck and took care of it all from there. If you're considering donating a car to help PKN, go for it. By donating, you avoid all the hassles of selling the vehicle yourself. Forget about the low offers, mechanical repairs, and liability issues, and not posting your phone number is also a big plus. My payment comes in the form of a tax deduction, but more than that, I get the great feeling of helping out my favorite radio station. WPKN needs our support, so it can remain the independent, freeform radio station that is such a rare find today.
2: Hi there, this is Kevin Gallagher, host of Digging in the Dirt. And my next guest on the program will be Zach Lokes, an author, educator, designer, and grower who specializes in edible ecosystems. He has a brand new book out called The Edible Ecosystem Solution, Growing Biodiversity in Your Backyard and Beyond. Here on the next Digging in the Dirt, on listener-supported WPKN.
7: Shining a spotlight on human trafficking right here in the United States, nonprofit Traffic Jam Live presents singer songwriter Jose Feliciano at the Ridgefield Playhouse on Saturday, August 14th. Traffic Jam Live will donate 100% of the net proceeds to other anti human trafficking organizations. Donations can also be made to help provide complimentary concert tickets to human trafficking survivors in Connecticut. More info and tickets available at TrafficJamLive.org.
0: Bridge House is a community for adults with persistent mental illness who choose to take an active role in their recovery. Since 1986, Bridge House in Bridgeport has helped thousands of courageous men and women who have walked through its doors find hope and purpose in their lives. We are dedicated to supporting individuals in their recovery process through employment, education, and social experiences. Bridge House is a unique resource for anyone with a mental illness who wants help. Information about Bridge House and the services we provide can be found at bridgehousect.org or by calling 203-335-5339. Hi,
6: this
2: is Justin Shea, host of JMS Jams, heard every fourth Wednesday of the month from 8 to 11 p.m. Here on WPKN Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, independent community
7: radio broadcasting from the campus of the University of Bridgeport,
2: streaming online at wpkn.org.